you would take your Bibles, go to Luke chapter number 21. Luke chapter number 21. This is a parallel passage of a chapter in the book of Matthew that we've looked at on numerous occasions in the last month, a month and a half, in our series of messages on edge pieces of dispensational salvation. And so this is Luke's gospel and a recording of what Jesus said to his disciples. And if you want to uh, hear more about the upcoming tribulation period and what Jesus had to say, then you can read Luke 21 and verses 7 through verse number 28, a few other surrounding verses as well. But for sake of time, because I really need to finish this message today, I want to just draw your attention to one verse in Luke 21, and that is verse number 19, if you'd look there with me where Jesus says, in your patience, possess ye your souls. Jesus is making it clear that in the tribulation period, patience is going to be an essential characteristic for those whose souls would be saved out of this horrible upcoming tribulation period. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessings upon this time that we have together. Father, it's good to be in your house today. It's good to be saved. It's good to enjoy the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the congregational singing. Uh, Thank you for Miss Anna's special and uh, touching our heart. Thank you for a good prayer meeting last night. Uh, Lord, I was so encouraged just by your presence. And Lord, I think about when we sang that Haven of Rest song and how that you just spoke to my heart like I, I haven't felt in uh, quite a number of time, and I thank you for that. And I pray, God, that those times would grow and become more frequent. And I pray, God, that in the midst of a very interesting day that we live in, I pray that as a church congregation, that we would experience a spiritual refreshing, a revival, if you will. Uh, God, just a, a heart to uh, to get sin and worldliness out of our lives and to start following and obeying the Word of God and to be close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that some of the testimonies that we heard last night, some of the things that we've been hearing for the last few weeks, we pray, God, that that would continue, that lives would be changed. Father, I sense that the messages that we've been preaching here recently have been doing some plowing in the hearts of people. And I pray, Father, that you would just sow your seeds of uh, truth and love and goodness and grace, and God, that you would water those seeds and that they would bring forth fruit in our lives. Lord, give us a spirit of attentiveness today. Remove any distraction. We pray, Father, for all of our young people that are listening, God, that they'd be able to follow what's being said and keep their attention span and not think about other things. And for all of us, God, we pray that we would be in touch and in tune with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. We pray if anyone is listening today that is without Christ, that this would be the day of days for them, that they would get saved. We pray for any backslidden, wandering believer that perhaps this would be the day that they would come back to you and get their heart and life right. Have your will and way in the service today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw several things, and I want to quickly just give you a recap of what those things were. Number one, we saw that in the tribulation period, for salvation, those who receive the mark of the beast will absolutely be damned. 
Uh, there will be no turning back from that. Once the person receives that mark, then their eternal destiny is sealed and they will end up in the lake of fire. We saw, number two, that during the tribulation period, God's people will be resisting. They will be avoiding. And just because the Antichrist is going to be dominating the world as the one-ruled world ruler over a one-world system, and folks, we've been heading for that for a long time, and I feel quite certain that the interesting things that are going on in the United States of America this past year are just playing right into the hand of the Antichrist and uh, with the socialistic agenda, with just the, just the insanity that we're seeing in our country today. Certainly, the devil is behind the details. And yes, I'm sure there is conspiracy theories, but behind all of those conspiracies is not Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats and Russia and China. The, the, the man behind the curtain is none other than Satan himself, the God of this world, little g. The one who tempted the Lord Jesus Christ and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them and said, I will give them to you if you'll fall down and worship me. It would have been no temptation if Satan would not have had that power given to him by God. But he does have that power. And so the devil is certainly behind the details. And that's why it's important that we keep our eyes in Christ rather than swim around in a bunch of conspiracy theories that cannot be proven. Hey, I've been watching the news more this past three or four months than I probably have in the previous three or four years combined times two. But I have to say, I'm sick of it. I want to know what's going on so I can be a good pastor. But at that point, it's like, you know what? It's, what's going to happen is going to happen. And it doesn't change this book, and it doesn't change the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of it, while it may take me by surprise, none of it's going to take our Savior by surprise. And so just stick close to Him. Follow real, real close, and He'll guide us through this. We don't have to see what's going to happen tomorrow, because we know we are with the One who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So just stick real close. We saw number three, that the elements of tribulation salvation are as follows. You have the blood of the Lamb, or I guess we would say the merits of the cross. Uh, you have also that those in the tribulation period, that they were saved by the word of their testimony. And then we also saw that they loved not their lives unto the death. And you know what? If you're going to love not your life, Unto the death, that is a demonstration of genuine faith. As they say, talk is cheap. I worked with a guy, and I know I've told you this story before. I worked with a guy years ago at uh, Ingalls Grocery Warehouse in Black Mountain. And this guy was one of these guys that lived wickedly. But when he got around, you know, I was, uh, I worked there, and this was in my preacher boy days. And I tell you what, I, I left tracks everywhere. I witnessed to everyone. I, and I was probably, there was probably times when I was witnessing when I should have been working. And God had to show me that, by the way. And he corrected me. But in those days, it's like I was so in tune and I wanted to serve Christ and I wanted to win souls to Jesus Christ. But I would witness. And whenever this guy got around me, he knew that I was a young preacher and he would get real, real spiritual. 
You know how people do. He didn't live righteously. He wasn't spiritual, but boy, he knew how to say the word God with breath. God. I love God. Can you imagine some of these people that when they pray, they talk like that? Can you imagine if your son came up to you, dads, and started saying, Dad, I think you're wonderful. Get away from me, kid. Be real. I I don't think that any of the men of God in the Scripture, can you imagine John the Baptist praying like that? I don't think it was that way at all. But this guy that I worked with, he was like that. He'd get real spiritual. And one time he just looked at me, and boy, he had this, he was... He was tuned in and he said, Randy, I would die for Jesus. And I, you know, after about time and, you know, just hearing and seeing that hypocrisy about maybe 10, 15 times, I'd had enough of it. And I just said, I I told his, mentioned his name and I said, no, you wouldn't. And he was like taken back. Like, how dare you say that? And I said, listen, if you won't live for him, you ain't going to die for him. And that's the last time I had to hear all of that nonsense, phony, baloney spirituality. And so you know what? The, they love not their lives unto the death. That is a demonstration of real, genuine faith. People who believe in the Word of God and they know that to stand for the Word of God, they're probably going to lose their head and uh, certainly lose their life. And then number four, we saw last week, that the application of tribulation salvation has to do with a calling on the Lord. Of course, Joel's prophecy said that. Peter repeated it in Acts chapter number 2. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And of course, Joel prophesied that during the tribulation period that that would be the application of a person's faith. Not too different from the way it is even in the dispensation that we live in. And that brings us now to, uh, we are in lesson number three, part number two of tribulation salvation, and that brings us to Roman numeral five. Salvation in the tribulation requires endurance. I mentioned briefly last week that we would have some information that is forthcoming that is considered somewhat controversial. And so we didn't have time for any of it last week, and so today, much of what we're going to be talking about, in all honesty, is uh, considered a controversial topic. In Matthew 24 and verse number 12, Jesus says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, we're not in the tribulation period yet. But wouldn't you agree that we are already seeing this prophecy come to fruition? The love of it, because iniquity shall abound. In this Laodicean church age that we live in, men indeed are lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And it's just so rare when you find a person who says, yes, I'm born again, who actually lives a holy, consecrated life to the Lord. So many things are allowed under the auspice of grace. And you know what? That is a perversion of the teaching of the grace of God. Listen, Titus said 
that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And he goes on to say that that same grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Hey, I'm glad that when we get to heaven, we're going to be we're going to have a body like Jesus Christ. We're going to be completely sinless. But that effect of our salvation is supposed to be going on in the here and the now. We're supposed to be more like Jesus Christ today than we were the moment that we got saved. We're supposed to be growing in holiness and in sanctification. So this modern teaching of grace is not biblical And so um, the tribulation period, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And then verse number 13, we've seen it a number of times, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's all kinds of endurance. I have great admiration for Brother Ben Smoker and his endurance running, admiration a little bit of pity mixed in there with that. I mean, this guy runs 100-mile races. That's insane. I just can't. It's like, why would you want to do that? I remember he finished a 100-mile race. And, you know, normally I think that most people that finish those races, they probably lay on the couch for a week afterward. And the very next day, he's in church. And you look down, he's wearing sandals. And he wasn't trying to be like Jesus just his feet were so swollen he couldn't put his shoes on. They thought he was going to have to go to, the, go to the hospital because his legs were so swollen. And I'm like, why do you want to do that? But he loves it. And he has trained himself and he is committed to, those, to that type of endurance. And we could go on and on about different types of physical endurance. And I can tell you story after story and illustration after illustration of other people. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> but, you know, then there is, uh, I, I just kind of threw this in because it, it touched my heart this morning. There's ministerial endurance. I, I love to see men, you know, Brother Robert Buchanan brought us a message this past Wednesday night. And, you know, here's a man that's been faithful through the ups and the downs and just keeps on going for God. Not flashy, not flamboyant. Probably, you know, a lot of people, it's like, you know, who's this guy? But God knows who he is because he's been faithful. Ministerial endurance. Boy, how could we not think of Brother Lonnie Wilson and Brother Mac Pennell and my father-in-law, Brother Wendell Runyon? Men who, yes, none of them were perfect, but they finished and they stayed faithful unto the end and they always just kept in the battle and Man, I appreciate that because all around us we see good men that keep falling, falling into sin or getting discouraged in the ministry and just deciding, you know what, I think I'll just go sell insurance. Ministry in this day and age, and, and listen, I, I am very thankful that God has me as a pastor and particularly as pastor of this church. And, and I tell, I, I, I brag on y'all to, to, preacher friends, and to all kinds of people. i got a wonderful church family, and um, my church family is not high maintenance. And I know there are a lot of pastors 
that their people literally drive them crazy. It's true. And you're not that way. Not even Brother Rex. Where did he go? He missed out on... He's a little little bit bitter about not getting cinnamon rolls, Sister Lynn. But uh, I appreciate my church family. And it's a joy to be in the ministry. But this day and age, let's face it, it's not the easiest time to pastor. And it takes some ministerial endurance. And we ought to be thankful for men like Brother Lonnie and Brother Mack and Brother Runyon. And we could go on and on. Men who finished and they finished clean. They kept staying faithful to the Word of God. And at many times it was at great sacrifice. All kinds of endurance. Between 1914 and 1917, a man by the name of Sir Ernest Shackleton attempted to navigate across the Antarctic through the South Pole. The story of endurance, that's his ship's name, by the way, and it's also the name of a book written about him. I've read the book. It's a fabulous book. Very interesting. It's an amazing account of his tenacity, his intelligent leadership to lead his crew to safety after his ship became stuck and eventually crushed by the ice. It was a three-year endeavor. And if you knew all the circumstances around it, you would think there is no way that any of them are going to make it through that expedition alive. But Sir Shackleton got them through it through some intelligent leadership. One of his uh, contemporaries, Sir Raymond Priestley, said this of him. He said, Scott, that was another explorer who had went to the Antarctic, Scott, for scientific method, Amundsen for speed and efficiency, but when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for a Shackleton. Like that's the kind of guy that you want leading you through some troublesome times. Endurance. We could say a lot about human endurance, but folks, during this tribulation period, the necessity of endurance is going to be your soul will depend upon it. And I say your, I hope I'm not speaking to anyone that will encounter any of this tribulation catastrophe. I hope that you're all saved, and if you're not saved, get saved before it's eternally too late. Listen, all that's going on around us today... If I was not sure 100% that I was saved, listen, I wouldn't even wait till this message is finished. I'd be down on this altar and I'd be crying out and saying, God, I'm a sinner and I want you to save me because I don't want to go through the tribulation and I certainly don't want to end up in the lake of fire. I wouldn't wait. So many people just say, well, well, not, not today, not yet. Hell will be full of people that didn't say no to God. They just said not yet to God. Endurance is going to be so crucial during this tribulation period. Let's talk a little bit about tribulation endurance. Revelation 14, and you're welcome to turn in your Bibles with me. You can look on the screen, whatever uh, whatever works best for you. In Romans 14 and verse number 11... It says, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, 
and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Remember, we saw last week that receiving this mark is not something that someone's going to do accidentally so that they can buy groceries. It's going to be associated with worship of the beast and the image that the false prophet brings to life. And then notice in verse number 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Notice the word patience and notice the word keep, keeping the commandments of God. As a side note, I'd like to draw to your attention the fact that the keeping of God's commandments is the product of a man's faith, not the source of a man's faith. The Pharisees had it all backward. They thought that their their outward, willful keeping of the commandments are what pleased God. But Jesus showed up and he made it clear that you're missing the boat, Pharisees. You're trying to do everything outwardly, but what God's concerned with is what's going on in the heart. Faith and love and mercy and truth. Listen, if a man truly has faith in God, then there will be a result of that faith in a keeping of the commandments of God. Consider what 1 John chapter number 2, verse number 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Remember what we said, talk is cheap? That is so true. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Folks, this is a faith concept, not a dispensational concept. Just as James chapter number 2 shows that faith without works is dead, James is making it clear that faith is the source of works, uh, not the byproduct of a man's works. And so tribulation endurance is going to be an absolute necessity. Now, I want to talk to you about this next point is very controversial. And there's number there's a number of controversial things regarding tribulation salvation. One of them, there are some people that believe and teach that no one's going to be saved in the tribulation period. Well, you know, you really have to bypass a handful of verses in the book of Revelation that make that clear that there will be people saved. And so then others you've got that start arguing over who are the tribulation saints and, and who aren't. But there are also some that would argue, in fact, a recent author has basically taught that the tribulation saint is eternally secure somewhat as you and I are. And, uh, you know, I want to address that just for a few minutes here this morning, not because I want to get involved in controversy and not because I want to argue with any other person who's preached or taught a message or wrote a book. Uh, I, I told someone recently, I said, uh, I said, uh, shoot me if I decide to write a book. You say, why, why is that? Because, you know, everybody that writes a book just ends up being in a fuss with everyone. You ever, you ever notice that? Maybe you, maybe you're not privy to that part of ministry, but, you know, people write a book 
and then somebody disagrees with them and wants to argue with them, and so they write a book to counter that, and then somebody else disagrees with both of them, and then they have to write a book to counter that. You know what? If you read a book, if you don't agree with someone, then don't agree with them and move on. Amen? Now, and I will say this, I'm going to give an account for what I teach you. Amen? And, and, and I know that, hey, that I'm certain that I don't have it all figured out, and I'm certain that I've had some things figured out wrongly that I have preached from this pulpit. And I'm just, I'm counting on and hoping that God would be gracious because, after all, Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm a student of the Word of God, not a master of it. And all of us should be students. And yes, we should learn. And yes, we should grow. And yes, because of the accountability, I need to be very careful not to preach or teach false doctrine. But you know what? It's, it's, there are some doctrines and teachings that get a little bit complex. And sometimes I think, Lord, I wish that I had an intelligent mind like brother so-and-so or brother so-and-so. And you know what? We do the best we can with what we have to work with. And you ought to do the same thing. And so I'm not trying to get involved in controversy, but I do want to address this just to make sure that nobody misunderstands anything. A recent author has basically taught that since the only people that take the mark are people that are deceived, and the tribulation saint is not deceived, then he cannot take the mark and is therefore eternally secure. And here's one of the proof texts, and you'll, you'll kind of, if, if you just take this passage of Scripture in and of itself, you can at least see the logic behind his argument. Matthew 24, verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, inasmuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And so the theory here is that the elect uh, cannot be deceived, and even if they could, God's going to cut the tribulation period short before that happens, and so therefore the tribulation saint is what we would consider secure and not in danger of losing their salvation. Well, here's the major problem that I see with this idea. First of all, the term elect is not a reference to all tribulation saints. It is speaking of a specific chosen group of 144,000 Jews that are sealed by an angel in Revelation chapter 7. As always, when I make a statement from this pulpit and I give you a reference and I don't have time to study it all out, look it up for yourself and make sure that what I'm telling you is the truth and make sure that, that uh, I'm not misunderstanding it and uh, and inadvertently teaching you something that's not true. Revelation 7 speaks 
of uh, the 12 tribes and 112,000 out of each tribe, which makes 144,000 Jews. And here are some of the reasons that I believe, and I think we can know that the elect is a term referring to the 144,000. Uh, the elect we saw in Matthew 24, 22, are contrasted with other flesh that will be saved. And I think that you can see that. It's talking about no flesh being saved. And it's not talking about the same group of people as when it uses, when Jesus used the term elect. In addition to that, it is my understanding that the elect, these 144,000, will not be enduring to the end of the tribulation period, but rather they will be raptured prior to the end. They'll be in heaven before the tribulation period is over. Notice the wording just before the angel seals the 144,000 in Revelation 7 in verse number 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding, watch this, the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And then as we switch back to Matthew 24, red letters, Jesus speaking, he says, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Notice the connection. Now, this trumpet sounding is not us being raptured. This is the 144,000 being raptured out of the tribulation period. Not to mention the fact that if you look at Revelation 14, we find that these 144,000, after the earth is reaped, before the seven last, last plagues come down upon this earth, we find that these 144,000 are not on earth, but they are in heaven. And so there's a really, really clear connection of these verses cross-referenced together that in my mind anyhow, and I've not seen anything that would contradict that, uh, that these elect in Matthew 24, 22 are not referring to all tribulation saints, but rather to a specific group of 144,000 Jews. Not only that, but look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 7 and verse number 9. We'll see here that the term elect and the tribulation saint are definitely, without question, two separate groups. Now, immediately after John receives the vision of these 144,000 Jews that we've referred to as the elect, here is what we read in verse number 9. After this, I beheld, and lo, watch it folks, a great multitude which no man could number. 144,000 is a number, amen? But all the other tribulation saints are more than that, more than what can be numbered. They come from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, not of the tribe of Issachar and the tribe of Zebulun and the tribe of Judah and so forth, but these are from all the nations. And you know what? That is encouraging 
that even though the tribulation is going to be a difficult time to be saved, there's going to be an unnumbered multitude of people that are going to make it through it. I don't know, that just gives me some joy. Maybe, maybe because there are people that we preach to, maybe in our lifetime that we witness to, that they won't get saved and they, they reject or they wait and it's like, why won't they get saved? And maybe after we're out of here, maybe, just maybe, God will get through to their heart and we'll see them, uh, we'll see them in heaven or we'll see them on the earth someday when it's all said and done and be rejoicing with them that they finally had the grace to listen to the message and to trust the Word of God. Great multitude which no man could number. It says they, they are before, they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And so certainly there's 144,000 Jews that are sealed, but then there's also an unnumbered multitude of tribulation saints. We find also that this great unnumbered multitude are uh, interpreted as tribulation saints and not the 144,000 Jews. Look at verse number 13 of Revelation 7. It says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. And then he goes on to say, that God will wipe away all tears. You know, they're going to be acquainted with tears. They're going to be acquainted with hunger. They're going to be acquainted with heat and suffering. And God says He's going to get them through that by the blood of the Lamb, and they're going to be before the throne, and they're going to have total peace and comfort and joy. And that's going to be a huge blessing. You know, sometimes when you go through tough times, have you ever noticed that after you go through a rough time of suffering... It just doesn't take much to make you happy. I mean, when you're really, really hungry, something simple. If you've ever just really been famished, you can just take a piece of cheap bread from the grocery store that's slightly dried out and stale and rip off a chunk of it. No butter, no jelly, no honey. Just rip off a chunk of it, put it in your mouth, and those taste buds kind of go, wow, that tastes good. Why? Because there's been some suffering associated with it. Don't you know when those tribulation saints stand before the throne of God and before the throne of the Lamb, they are going to be so relieved and so rejoicing. You going through a rough time, Christian? Hey, the same truth applies to us. It's going to be worth it all. When we see Christ, Paul said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so we see that these tribulation saints are obviously distinguished from the 144,000 Jews that Jesus calls the elect. 
Now, the next topic that I want us to look at this morning, and uh, this will be uh, our second to last one, and that is I want to talk about works and salvation. So much controversy regarding the concept of works as being part of a person's salvation. We looked at some controversy recently regarding Old Testament salvation. And you know what? If I don't understand something and the Bible just says it, I'm going to go with what the Bible says, not with what I understand. There's a lot of things. You ever tried to understand the Trinity? You ever tried to understand the deity of Christ, how that Christ could be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? You ever tried to understand the concept of God being omniscient or being, um, being um, omnip- not omnipresent, what's the eternal, that's the one, it's not an omni one, is it? God being eternal, before the creation, what was there? We don't know. You ever try, just, just for a moment, try to visualize nothing. What, what, do you, what do you visualize when you visualize nothing? Uh, blackness. Blackness is something. God is so above us, and He transcends our finite minds that we can't even figure out God. Listen, when you can't figure something out, just take the Bible for what it says, and then move on. And you know what? God may give you more understanding, but there's some truths that that God is so far above our thoughts that there's no way that we're going to figure Him out. And you know, some people that are insecure think, well, I'm not going to trust God if I can't figure out where He's coming from. Well, you're going to live a miserable life because there's a lot of things that you're not going to figure out and God is not obligated to let us in on what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes he just says, son, daughter, you just got to trust me. I could tell you, but you wouldn't be able to handle it. If I told you what was going on or what was going to go on, it would probably destroy you. So God, as our loving father, just says, it's okay. I got this. Just follow me and trust me. Obey my word. I'll take care of the rest. Aren't you glad that we've got a God like that? He's never failed. He's never failed a promise. His word has always been true. So much controversy. Before we proceed, I want us to remember the place of works that uh, in salvation in the day and age that we live in. We're in the church age, also referred to as the age of grace. And so I want to throw in some reminders so that no one gets confused regarding what I'm saying today regarding works for salvation. In Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 8, this is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one to whom God revealed the mystery of the church age. And he said, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So salvation to us is not something that we work for to get or work to keep. It's something that we receive. And it's entirely the grace of God without works being involved in it in any aspect. Other than verse number 10. Here's the works. 
Verse number 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so works are a product of our salvation. They are not even remotely part of the process of church age salvation. If that's not enough proof, consider Romans chapter 4 and verse number 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you're working for your salvation, then that means that God's going to owe you salvation. You performed, and so now God's obligated to save you because you you held up your end of the bargain and you were good enough for His salvation. But we know from history and we know from reality that no one's good enough. In fact, God, Paul used Abraham as an example. He says, if, if you could be justified by works, Abraham could glory because he was such a good man. He was a better, he was a more godly man than any of us. But then Paul said, but not before God. See, that would mean that our works and our righteousness would have to measure up to God's standard. No one has ever measured up to that. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse number 5 of Romans 4, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. I'm glad that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we also get his righteousness put on our account. When God looks down on you as a believer... As a born-again saint, a child of God, he looks down, and we know that we're filthy. We know that we're not perfect. We're sometimes painfully aware, and if you're not painfully aware, every now and then Satan will come along and remind you of all of your faults and failures and sins. But when God looks down, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Put on our account. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. We should never, ever take that for granted. And then Philippians chapter number 2 and verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Didn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That is consistent with Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God does the work inside and then we're supposed to work it out. It's supposed to come out in our life as we follow the Lord and obey him. and, uh, And that sanctification process just continues to work. And so there's just a handful of verses just to make sure that our minds are solid, that in this day and age that we live in, works are not essential for salvation. Works are not essential to keep our salvation. We have eternal security in this day and age. And so my next point, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go as quickly as I can, and thank you for your patience today. I want to talk to you about the book of Hebrews. And before I do that, let me get my bottle of water. 
This may take me a couple hours. I'm joking. Notice I did not say that I wasn't going to keep you long. How many of you agree every time I say that it backfires on me? You know me well. I guarantee you, and my intentions are honorable and honest. I'm really trying, and sometimes I say that, and then it just does just the opposite. And I know that when I say that, some of you that are wanting to get home go, No, don't say that, preacher. But I want to talk to you about the book of Hebrews. The idea of unconditional security of the tribulation saint in all honesty, renders the book of Hebrews even more confusing than it appears. And that's just the fact of the matter. If you have, if you as a believer, believing in the three passages that we just looked at, especially Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because that's so crystal clear, if you believe that and you believe that we as Gentile church-age believers are eternally secure, the book of Hebrews is just going to throw a monkey wrench in a lot of your doctrinal ideas. I mean, more than one. And if we believe that the tribulation saint is secure, the book of Hebrews just, it's already kind of a difficult book to understand and comprehend, but that just even makes it exponentially more difficult. The book of Hebrews, and let me just throw this your way, file it away. The book of Hebrews has dual meaning. Listen, as a church-age believer, don't throw the book of Hebrews out because it is full of really good stuff for all of us. I mean, it talks about the blood of Christ, and it talks about Christ being our high priest. And there are so many things that are that do have some doctrinal significance. But the book of Hebrews talks much about a new covenant. It talks much about the Hebrews and a day of rest that God has prepared for them. The book of Hebrews likens the gospel that Joshua was preaching to the, the Israel, to the Hebrews, as Joshua was the one that was bringing them into the promised land, into Canaan land, i.e. a kingdom rest, and that is a parallel or a continuation of God's plan for the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And so there's a connection, doctrinally speaking, between the book of Hebrews and the Jewish people, the Hebrews, entering into that millennial 1,000-year uh, rest that God has for him. Did not God say to the Hebrews to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? That seventh day of rest. Does not the Bible say that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years? Do you know that leading up to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we have about 6,000 years of human history. That seventh thousand year is going to be a time of rest on this earth. Rest because Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning, and it's going to be a wonderful time, and I'm going to be preaching on that next week, and I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope that the things that, that are speaking to my heart will be a blessing to you as well. But the book of Hebrews talks about this new covenant, and that, that creates a context that is so important to keep in mind. In 1 Corinthians 9, 
and verse number 9. Here's an example of a dual meaning in Scripture. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now that is, that is certainly written to the Hebrews, the Jews, in Moses' day. That was a practical commandment, a practical law. But notice what Paul goes on to say, Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. You know what we have there? We have an example of a dual meaning. It meant something to the Jew in the wilderness as Moses gave them those teachings. But the dual meaning was God wrote it for us in the church age so that we would understand that we're supposed to take care of our pastors, which this church does a fabulous job of, by the way. And I'm very grateful, very thankful. And so it was written, it has a dual meaning. That's just an example to file away when we could look at many, many others. Let's take a look now at some problem texts in the book of Hebrews, applying them doctrinally. And I'm just going to give you a handful of examples, and I'm going to move quickly through these. Won't have time to explain them all, but I think that you'll see that they certainly don't match Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and they sound more like something that's going to mean something to the tribulation saint more so than us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 14 says, For we are made partakers of Christ if, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Unto the end. Sounds a little bit like they that endure unto the end shall be saved. Hebrews 4, verse number 1. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, not talking about heaven, it's talking about entering into a rest, any of you should seem to come short of it, not endure to the end, fail. Hebrews 4, verse number 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. What's another word for labor? Works. Let us labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now listen, if you read modern, or really the last 200 years, you read pretty much every commentary on the book of Hebrews, it is almost embarrassing how good men, good preachers, good theologians, how they dance around all of these verses and try to explain them away with Greek or some kind of complex hypothetical way. Listen, these these scriptures are crystal clear and they say what they mean and mean what they say. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 4. Now, for, for anybody that believes that you can lose your salvation in this time period and they use this verse of scripture... I find it interesting that all of these different denominations that believe you can lose your salvation, they also believe that you can get it back. Like you get born again, and then you lose it, and then you get born again again. Then if you lose it that time, then you get born again again again. 
So um, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus, except a man be born again, 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 again? He cannot see the kingdom of God. Because you know what? If, if God's standard of holiness is the standard, how in the world do you know if you've sinned enough to lose your salvation? Nobody that believes that can really pinpoint exactly what do you have to do to lose your salvation. Now watch this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. This is according to this passage. If you fall away, if you lose your salvation, you can't get it back. You're done. You're toast. Now, I, rec- I recognize that someone who is truly saved in this time period, it, they may think they've lost their salvation, but if they really have it, they haven't. Now, they may go, they may live the rest of their life miserable and defeated, and they may, you know, nothing worse than going through life feeling insecure that I'm one step away from losing it. That's not the person that can serve God and worship Him and really have joy because they're worrying about something that God said, don't worry about, I got this. But the person in the tribulation period, if they fall away, it's over. They're not going to get a second chance. And the application doctrinally of that passage is consistent with what we read about the gospel of the kingdom and particularly the tribulation period. How about Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 11? And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. There's that phrase, unto the end again. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember what Jesus said? In your patience possess ye your souls. Because the tribulation saint is going to have to have those works, that labor, he's going to have to endure unto the end. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. This is our, our last Hebrews passage. He says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Conditional, obviously conditional. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. Boy, that sounds like we're talking about tribulation period. And will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But notice verse number 9. Here's this dual meaning. The writer of Hebrews says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now listen, don't throw Hebrews out because there are doctrinal passages that are not specifically to us. They are still spiritually applicable. They are still practically applicable. And yes, in some places in Hebrews, they are doctrinally applicable because it's New Testament doctrine. But you have to be able to rightly divide and take it within its context. Otherwise, you're going to be confused and you're going to think that there are errors or contradictions in the Bible. 
Much of the confusion and contention stems from each person's understanding of the subject of works. No one, listen to this, please get this, no one in any dispensation ever works to earn or deserve his or her salvation. Salvation is of the Lord in all dispensations. God's got to do the saving. But if we take the Bible for what it says, the dispensation in which we live is the only one in which works are not associated. We have the eternal security of the indwelling, regenerating Holy Spirit of God. Unconditional, eternal security is unique to this church age dispensation. A blank note here. I guess I'm done here. I don't know what to say. We have the Holy Spirit. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. No other people are spiritually circumcised like uh, Colossians chapter 2 tells us that we are. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, and whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Watch this, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is an operation made without hands. You know, when we get saved in this dispensation, for the Holy Spirit to indwell us the way that He does, He has to cut loose our soul from our flesh because our flesh is wicked and sinful. And so there has to be a cutting loose in order for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And by the way, nothing in the tribulation period speaks anything of the subject of regeneration or being born again. They are saved, but they are not regenerated the way that you and I are. And that's why it's so important to understand our Bible, to be, uh, to be fed and to be edified from our Bible. We have to rightly divide and figure out what Jesus is saying. Is he talking about us or is he talking about the tribulation period? We won't understand the book of Revelation and we certainly will struggle with the book of Hebrews if we do not rightly divide the word of truth. In conclusion... Regardless of speculation and controversy, regardless of it, if you find yourself missing the rapture, you better do the following things. Number one, you better get in the Bible and protect yourself from deception. Number two, you better determine that your physical life is insignificant. It doesn't matter what happens to this life, it matters what happens in the life to come. Number three, you better put your trust in the merits of Calvary, the blood of Jesus Christ. Number four, you better call on the Lord to save you. You better ask Him, say, God, save me. Number five, you better hang on until death or deliverance. Now, in closing, wouldn't you agree with me that practically speaking, practically speaking, 
all of these things we ought to do today. You ought to hang on. You ought to endure. You ought to not quit on God. You ought to trust Him and endure to the end of your life. You remember the three Hebrew children? They're a picture and they're a type of the tribulation saint. Because they were getting ready to get thrown in a fiery furnace because they would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. That's a picture and type of the image of the Antichrist. And they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, is it true that you won't bow down to the image that I have made? And they said unto him, they said, O king, we are not careful to answer thee of this matter. Be it known unto thee that we will not bow down and serve thy image. They said, our God is able to deliver us. Don't you know God is able to deliver us? But the next three words that they said need to be our words as well. But if not. If I end up in the fiery furnace, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, we're not bowing down to your God. That's endurance. That's tenacity. That is faith. And in this day and age that we live in, it's not nearly as bad as what it's going to get. We haven't even scratched the surface. But we ought to quit whining and complaining and thinking that we've got it so bad and we ought to at least have the same faith of the three Hebrew children and say, but if not, but if not, God, we're going to serve you with all of our heart. You remember our opening text in the book of Luke, chapter 21, where Jesus said, in your patience possess ye your souls. I want to share another verse that he said just a few verses later. He said in verse number 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, hey, we're seeing it, right? It's beginning to come to pass. He said, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. It's getting closer, brothers and sisters. It's getting closer. Stay faithful. If you're not saved, get saved before it's eternally too late. Next week, we're going to see the blessings of the millennium and see what a wonderful place that this planet is going to be when Jesus is here and He's in charge. It's going to be wonderful. Now I'm looking forward to it. And I hope that by the grace of God, that if we suffer with Him, I hope that I'll be able to reign with Him. And uh, I know the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a little interesting. I'm not quite sure how it's going to go. I hope it goes well for me. And I certainly hope it goes well for you. Let's help one another have a good judgment seat of Christ. Stay faithful, folks. I hope we've said some things that's been a help to you. I certainly hope that we have answered more questions than we've created here this morning. Get in your Bible. That's the only protection that we have from the deception of this day and age in which we live.